Okay, gang, take your Bible and open it to Luke chapter 24, okay? Go to Luke's biography, we call them Gospels, and go to the last chapter. We're going to be in the last few verses, Luke 24, verse 50. Have you ever noticed that the songs we sing about in church on Sundays about God reflect the goodness of God, everything that's right about God, as opposed to everything that's wrong about me or us? I mean, I mean, think about that for, for a second. Uh, the messages that I try and deliver and, and teach and the music that we use, uh, the videos that we'll use, they, they, always, they always point to what's right about God, not necessarily what's wrong about us. Uh, now, there's a reason for that. I mean, imagine for a moment if you came to church and instead of singing, you make all things work together for my good, you stay the same forever, your love never changes. What if instead we sang, woe is me, I'll never measure up, my life has come unraveled, my marriage is falling apart, my children won't listen. Imagine. You see, we're going to talk about that today and why that's actually important, why that's actually ordained of God. You see, that's what worship is. When you gather to worship, what you're doing is you're celebrating what's right with God. You're not focusing on what's wrong with you. You're celebrating about what, what's good about God, not what's bad about you. And it all has to do with your perspective, your starting point. Um, I read an interesting article last week. Remember a few years ago when the Super Bowl was in Indianapolis, Indiana? Well, there were two boys, evidently, that had decided to go walking in the streets, and they were walking the, the downtown streets of Indianapolis, and this dog, this wild dog came out of an alley and actually attacked one of the little boys. So the other little boy acted very quickly. He grabbed a pipe or a, or a two by four that was in that alley, and he literally beat that dog to death. Well, there was a reporter for the Indianapolis Star that got wind of this, and he decided to write a story about this heroic little boy. And the headline that day in the paper read, Colts fan bravely saves friend's life from a rabid Rottweiler. Well, turns out the little boy wasn't a Colts fan, so he called the newspaper. He spoke to the reporter. He said, sir, I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm not really a Colts fan. And the man said, oh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. You're from India, aren't you? He said, oh, yes, I'm from India, Indianapolis. He said, well, I'll correct it in tomorrow's paper. So the next day, the paper came out, and the headline that day read, Pacers fan. Now, if you're not an NBA fan, you don't know that the Pacers are the Indianapolis basketball team. Pacers fan bravely saves friend's life from a rabid Rottweiler. Well, once again, the little boy had to pick up the phone. He called the newspaper. He spoke to the reporter. He said, sir, I'm really not a Pacers fan either. The man said, well, you live in Indy. Are you a sports fan at all? He said, yes. Actually, I'm an avid Atlanta Falcons fan. <laughs> the reporter hung up the phone. The next day, the, the, the paper read, redneck Falcon fan kills faithful family pet. <laughs> That's quite a perspective on us Southerners, isn't it? See, today I want to start, talk about our starting point. I want to talk about our perspective when it comes to your interpretation of God in your life. What is your starting point? What is your perspective? What has determined how you will examine your life and your faith walk? You see, viewpoint and perspective are incredibly important when it comes to the faith walk. Incredibly important when it comes to what we're doing here today, which is worship. You see? Worship, as the scripture would define it, is a predetermined godly bias regarding every part of your life. Did you get that? 
Worship, as the scripture would define it, is a predetermined godly perspective, a godly slant, a godly bias on every part of your life. When every part of your life is interpreted in light of God, is understood in light of God, that is worship. Now, there's a lot of confusion surrounding this topic in our churches. Some people think worship is this, one hour on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, worship is impossible. You're incapable of it because you're not in a church building. Some people think worship is this. When the music plays, you raise your hands. That's not worship. It can be, but that's not all there is. Some people think worship is this, when we pray. Some people think worship is some kind of feeling when you go to church. Some people think worship is the music part of a church service. I mean, I've had people tell me on the way out, Pastor Mike, I really enjoyed the worship part of the service today. What are they saying? They're saying, I really enjoyed the music. The message wasn't much, but I really enjoyed the music, is what they're saying, okay? Worship, as God would define it in his inspired, authoritative word, is a bias, a perspective, a predetermined perspective that we run every part of our lives through, every experience, every person, every relationship, every reaction comes through that perspective. Someone has said the following, we have become a generation of people who worship our work, we play, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Let me read that again. We've become a generation of people who worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Now, all of us know someone who worships their work, right? Does that mean when they go to the office, they do this? No. Does that mean they do this? No. What that means is they run every other part of their life through the prism, through the predetermined perspective, through the bias of work. Decisions are made with work in mind first. Money is spent with work in mind first. You see, Worship is that predetermined perspective, and I want to talk about it today. The great theologian of the 20th century, a man by the name of A.W. Tozer, he wrote, and I, and I quote, Worship is the missing jewel in most modern churches. I mean, we're organized, we have our agendas, we have almost everything, but there's one thing that churches do not have, that is the ability to truly worship. One of my favorite authors and teachers is uh, Pastor Charles Swindoll, Dr. Chuck Swindoll. And he writes, again, I'm quoting, Amen, brother, we say when the sermon's good. Jump and clap your hands. Be sure to look the part of impassioned people. Stand up, sit down, heads bowed, eyes closed. Look somber, look contrite. Oh, here comes the offering plate. Dutifully drop in a few dollars. Last song, so shake someone's hand. Hey, want to go out for lunch? Where did I put my keys? The question is, where did we put God? And then Louis Giglio, one of my favorite pastors and teachers and authors, he writes, whatever you value most will ultimately determine who you are. If you worship money, you'll become greedy at the core of your heart. If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and poison your character. If you worship stuff, your life will become material, void of any eternal significance. If you give all of your praise to the little God of you, you'll become a disappointing little God to both yourself and to all those who trust you. Today we're going to talk about something that I've never taught on publicly, at least not in this setting. We're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know the chronology 
of the gospel, you know that on Friday, we call it Good Friday, Jesus died, the day of the crucifixion. On the third day, Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the resurrection, he rose from the dead. But 40 days after that, he ascended to the Father. So he was dead on Friday, he was alive on Sunday, then he spent the next 40 days, 10 days beyond a month, with his closest followers. The Bible says that he appeared to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, 500 of them at one time, during that 40-day time span. And remember, the eyewitness testimony of the risen and resurrected Christ, the communication of truth during that 40-day period between Christ and his disciples is what began the early church revolution. Remember, the early church exploded. The revolution began based upon a man, not a book. See, we had the book 300 years later, but the church was thriving for 300 years based solely upon what people experienced, what they saw during that 40-day time period. In fact, you could say it this way. When Jesus died on Friday, he proved himself the suffering servant of God willing to sacrifice for mankind. When he rose from the dead on Sunday, he demonstrated his power over sin, death, and the grave. And 40 days later, when he ascended to the Father, he revealed his lordship, that he alone should be the object of our worship. We're going to talk about that. Look at Luke 24. The very last few verses in the last chapter uh, explain the, the ascension. Now, it's kind of unfortunate that John's gospel follows Luke's gospel because Luke is both the author of Luke's biography and the historical book of Acts. It'd kind of be neat if, if, if you read through Luke and then you went right into Acts, but that's not the way the Bible's laid out. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, you remember Luke introduces himself as the author and he actually refers back to his gospel, his first book, he calls it. He's talking about the gospel of Luke. In chapter 24, during this 40-day period where Jesus spent with his disciples, he reaffirmed the teaching. He helped them connect the dots. Chapter 24 tells us that he went all the way back to the Old Testament. He used the law, the law of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books of law, as well as the Old Testament writings. That would have been uh, the books like Psalms, the poetic books in the middle of your Old Testament, and the prophets... Isaiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, that sort of thing. He used all parts of the Old Testament to help them connect the Old Testament with the crucifixion on Friday, the resurrection on Sunday, and now his ascension to the Father. He says to them in verse 50, Luke 24, verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, you recognize that town, Bethany? Bethany was the home of Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Remember that, John chapter 11? Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is dead. Jesus goes to Bethany. Jesus commands, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus staggers out of that tomb. He's alive once again. Okay, that's the place. He returns to Bethany. He lifts up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Think about the things that, that Jesus said. 
those short, concise statements that we associate with the crucifixion, the resurrection, and here the ascension. The crucifixion hanging on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, meaning it's complete. My work here is done. Jesus had taken on his body the sin of mankind. He has shed his blood to provide forgiveness for mankind. It is finished. When he rose from the dead on Sunday and he appeared in that room with his disciples, he said very simply and very succinctly, peace be with you. And here, as he ascends to the Father, he is no longer a baby in a manger. He is no longer a teacher, a rabbi. He is no longer a suffering servant willing to give his life on a cross. He is no longer triumphant over death in the grave. He is now Lord and God Almighty. He ascends back to where he belongs, and he says, I will return. Keep reading. He blessed them. He left them. He was taken up into heaven. Verse 52. Then they worshiped him. If you like to take notes in your Bible, circle the word then. It's very important. It implies that for the first time, many of his closest followers got it. Then, at the ascension, they worshiped him. Now put yourself in their shoes. Friday, he's dead. It's over. You're disappointed, disgusted, disillusioned. I mean, I've invested everything to follow you. I left my business, Jesus, to follow you. For three years, I thought you were going to change the world, and now look at you. You're dead. It's over. But come Sunday, somebody got, got a word that he was alive. But, but, but could you really trust it? I mean, come on. You saw him with your own eyes. He was dead. So you start to play that mental battle in your mind. Well, maybe he wasn't completely dead. Maybe, maybe, maybe he has a brother. Maybe there's some confusion regarding the story. The Bible teaches that when he ascended, there was no doubt to many of the disciples. It finally clicked. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. You know what happened to many of the disciples at the ascension? Their starting point changed. Their perspective changed. They may have been following Jesus for a variety of reasons, but believe me, at the ascension, when they heard him put together and connected dots in Luke 24 of Old Testament law, Old Testament writings, Old Testament prophets, New Testament son of God, dead on Friday, alive on Sunday, and now ascending to the Father where he belongs, it clicked. They got it. They understood. That's why their starting point changed their perspective changed. Here's what worship is. Worship is actually a response. It's our response to God. If you want a very simple definition of worship, that's what it is. It's my response to God based upon what he does and who he is. Worship is a predetermined perspective. In other words, I decide it going in. When it comes to my marriage, I've decided going in, this will be my perspective. When it comes to how I handle my money, I've decided going in, this is how I will handle my money. It's a predetermined perspective regarding everything in my life. Marriage, sexuality, dating. You know, I stood up here a few minutes ago, and I kind of tried to make a big deal out of, joy will come here, but Tyler will stay where he is until they're married when they will live together. Do you know why I did that? Because very few people do that these days, and yet, that's how it's supposed to be done. See? That's how God instructs us to do it. A predetermined perspective says, this is how I will date. Based upon my starting point, 
based upon my response to God, who he is, what he does, that's how I'll handle sexuality, dating, relationships. Look, that's how I'll solve problems. That's how I will deal with a difficult employer. That's how I will react to difficult circumstances. Worship. See, did you notice how difficult this is going to be? I mean, can you figure, I mean, stop thinking about this because what we're talking about is we're talking about shifting our starting point. We're, we're, talking, about, we're talking about changing our motivation. If, if most of us were honest, do you know who's on the throne of our lives, in our minds or our hearts? It's not Jesus. It's a little version of me. There's like this little me up in my mind or in my heart sitting on the throne of my life. And me determines the starting point. Me determines how I date. Me determines how I entertain myself. Me determines how I respond to my wife or my children. Me, little me, I determined how I spend my money. And yet lordship of Christ in my life means I got to climb down off that throne and I got to put him up there. See, the starting point changes. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be extremely difficult. It won't be easy. However, it can be done. And Paul in Romans chapter 12 tells us how to do it. Turn to Romans 12. Now, as I have rarely dealt with the ascension passage, I have probably taught Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 a thousand times in my career. These two verses sum up the faith walk in a nutshell. You want to know what God expects of you? You want to know how to make God Lord or boss in your life? He's the starting point. You want to know how to be a skillful life manager to invite the blessing of God upon your life and your comings and goings? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it to you. Paul writes, therefore, therefore is a word when you read it, you better pause for a moment and see what it's there for, Okay. Therefore means pause, reflect on what I just said in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is what we call a doxology, okay? Remember the old Baptist church you might have come up in? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Remember singing that song every service? That's called the doxology, okay? It's a, it's a hymn of praise. Well, that's what chapter 11 is. Chapter 11 is a doxology. It is a statement of who God is and what God does. Now, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in light of who God is and what he does, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is, what are those next words? Your true and proper worship. Other translations read, this is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, this is how you worship. It's not necessarily this. It's not necessarily this. It's sacrifice. I'm down from the throne. I'm no longer the boss. He, uh, he takes the throne and he is the boss. I urge you. Offer your bodies living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true and proper worship. Verse 2, do not conform any, any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Stop for a minute. What is the response to God in worship as Paul defines it? Well, it's sacrifice. Offering my body, my life, is a living sacrifice. Well, how do I do that? He'll get very specific in a moment, and he'll show us. What do I get out of this whole thing? Then you will know what God's will is. Then you will know how God wants you to date. And then you will know how God wants you to handle money. 
and resources and income. And then you will know what God wants you to do with your time. And then you will know which road God wants you to take. Why? Because you're not calling the shots. He is in response to who he is and what he does. I have predetermined he is my starting point. It takes sacrifice to do that. I'll show you how to do that in a second. It takes sacrifice to do that. But when I do it, I begin to know his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, you could say that worship is a very logical response. If you'd have been there that day, and you'd have heard him teach in Luke 24, and you started connecting the dots of Old Testament and New, of prophets and Christ, and then you saw him ascend until you could no longer see him. You think that'd have an impact on you? You think you'd walk away the same person? Probably not. I think if ever there was a time where I said, okay, I'm no longer the boss in my life, that person is. It would have been then. See, that's what we're dealing with. Worship is really a logical response. You take the disciples, men like Peter and, and John and James and, and later Luke and Paul. Uh, these people all had one thing in common. Now, now look, they were very different. They came from different backgrounds. Some of them were educated. Some of them were uneducated. Some of them had a little money. Others had nothing. But there was one thing they had in common, and that was they all recognized the value in simply following Christ. It's valuable to follow Christ. Now, contrast that with a rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, who came to Jesus and said, hey, psst, I want what you've got. Tell me how to get what you have. How may I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, give away all your stuff, sell all your possessions, take up your cross, come follow me. And how did the rich young ruler leave? With his head down and his spirits low. Why? Because he wanted God to be a part of his life. Maybe he even believed in God or Jesus, but he saw no value, no tangible value in following him. Worship is a logical response. What about you? See, this could be the source of your frustration. This could be why church just doesn't do it for you. This could be why you don't seem to get out of this what others do. And that burdens you. It frustrates you. It may be because, yeah, you believe in God. Yeah, you believe in Jesus. Yeah, you understand the crucifixion, what it is. You might even believe in the resurrection. But you don't really see any value in the sacrifice necessary to follow him. Now, Last question, and I'll tie this up. What does this sacrifice look like? I talk about sacrifice. My starting point shifts. That demands sacrifice. That enables me to recognize God's will for my marriage, for my money, for my time, for my recreation. What does this sacrifice look like? Thankfully, Paul lays it out very simply in verses two, uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. He says, first of all, you must refuse to conform. You see that? Verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. You know what the word conform means? It means to deny what's on the inside in an attempt to fit in on, on the outside. That's conforming. The, the word comes from a Greek root word, which means masquerade. To deny who you are on the inside. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He is now my starting point. That's what I believe on the inside, but that doesn't necessarily go over as well as it should at work. It doesn't necessarily go over as well as it should in the home. It doesn't necessarily make me fit in. Sometimes it excludes me. To conform is to deny what's on the inside in order to fit in on the outside. Let me give you a great example. How many of you grew up in the South and riding around with your dad or your, your grandparents, you never wore seatbelts? When I was a kid, I never wore a seatbelt, okay? Right, okay. Now, at some point in your life, 
you started buckling up, didn't you? In fact, today, those of you who didn't then but do today, can I see your hands? Okay, see, all the same people. Why? Because you started hearing on the news that seatbelts save lives. You started to realize, you know, this makes sense. You know, that, 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 that uncomfortable lap belt that was in my granddad's pickup truck, that thing that kind of stuck you in the butt when you sat in the middle of the truck and you just forced it down between the seats so it didn't bother you, and so you went without a seatbelt. Then you watch the news and you find out seatbelts save lives. The statistics cannot be argued with. So what do you do? You trade in your old car. You've got to get a, a newer model. It's got not just lap belts. It's got shoulder belts. It might even have airbags, dual front airbags, side impact airbags. Okay, why? Because inside you believe that seatbelts save lives, so the outside of your car reflects that inside belief. What happens when you find out the neighbor who drives in carpool with you doesn't make the kids buckle up? What do you do? To conform is just to not make any waves and let your kid ride in what you believe inside to be an unsafe vehicle. See, that is conforming. When I decide that Jesus is my starting point and I will interpret all of my surroundings, all of my experiences through that starting point, that perspective, that's who I am on the inside. My life ought to reflect that. To conform is to deny my life's reflection. C.S. Lewis wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us through worship. Not through this, not through this but through determining ahead of time that Jesus is my Lord. He is my boss. There's where the joy originates. See, the bottom line is this. Conformity is living down to the standard of the world, but worship is living up. Think about it. The ascension of Christ as Lord. He's no longer sacrifice on Friday. He's no longer triumphant victor on Sunday. Now he is God. He is Lord. He is ruler of all. There he goes. Like the ascension, I want to live up to him, not down to my culture. Here's the second thing he says at the end of verse 2. We need to choose then to transform it. And look, it all happens in your mind. Did you see that? And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our series, Battle Ready. This all begins up here. It all begins by what you perceive as truth. What you establish as my starting point. The transformation of my mind has to do with the thought process. Remember, Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and following. The disciples came to Jesus and he said... Large crowds are traveling with Jesus. He turned to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not instructing us or his followers to hate our parents or to hate our family. No, no, no. He's saying by comparison... He's not talking about hatred versus love. He's talking about love versus a greater love. Obviously, we're commanded to honor our parents. We're commanded to love our wives. We're commanded to love our husbands, to sacrifice for our children. Jesus is not trying to undo that. What Jesus is talking about is the sacrifice necessary to set him as Lord, starting point, perspective in my life. It's not easy but it can be done. It can be done when we refuse to conform and we choose instead to be transformed. So what about you? Who's on the throne of your life, in your brain or your heart? Who's sitting on that throne? See, 
If it's anything other than God, it's idolatry. We're guilty of breaking the very first commandment, have no other God except me. See, it'll keep you from being the person God has destined you to be. It'll leave you unfulfilled. It'll leave you unsettled. It'll cause you to come to church and say, well, that's pretty good. As opposed to, man, I'm getting what I need in my faith walk with Christ. Nothing's more reasonable. Nothing's more logical than following Christ. In fact, 17th century French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he said it this way. There are really only two kinds of people who can be called reasonable. Those who serve God with all their hearts because they know him, and those who seek God with all their hearts because they do not know him. Which are you? Which are you? The message renders Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 as follows. Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. It is a predetermined starting point through which I view everything in my life. It is my response to God, who he is, what he does, and it's only logical. That's why I began by reminding you, worship is about remembering what's right with God, not necessarily what's wrong with me. That's how we live up to his standard and not down to the pattern of this world. So fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Today is another way in which we do that. Communion. We remember that without the broken body or the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we wouldn't even have an audience with our creator. And yet due to his sacrifice on Friday, proving himself victorious on Sunday and 40 days later, reminding us all that he is the only one worthy of lordship in our lives. That's what today is about. Now here's how we're going to do this. Instead of bringing you all forward and marching you along a table and we're all in a long line, we're going to play a song in a moment that I'm willing to bet very few of you know. So just sit there in your seat. Listen to the words. Read the words. It's a beautiful song. It is a powerful song regarding our faith walk. And when you are ready, maybe early, maybe later in the song, when you are ready, just get up from your seat and walk to the nearest station. There are three across the back, two across the front. Take the bread, take the cup, and return to your seat, sit down. At the end of that song, we will partake together. Okay, God bless you. Listen to this.